No one wants to sound salesy when they're selling their services to couples. So how do you close deals without being aggressive or cheesy or clumsy? It's easy if you have a simple approach that leverages buyer psychology. In this week's episode of Own Your Business, I'll share with you the number one competitor for each and every inquiry you receive. Ways not to close deals. And I'll finish with three simple strategies to get to yes and feel totally comfortable making that ask. Own Your Business is a podcast for event professionals who want to grow with proven approaches. I'm Sam Jacobson, a sales, pricing, and copywriting expert in the wedding industry. Throughout my career, I've booked hundreds of events for millions in revenue. I've also led teams in premium and luxury markets. Now I coach people like you with my company, ID Action Consulting. It's not easy to run a business, especially if it's a business of one, because we aren't born knowing everything. Like you, I had experts who showed me the way when I was starting out and when I was ready to level up. I hope this podcast gives you the confidence to own your business. I didn't grow up wanting to be a business coach or any kind of coach. I wanted to be a player, a basketball player. I was a child of the 80s, so my heroes were Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan. Clyde Drexler was my local superstar in Portland where I grew up, and I loved watching him play. But I wasn't Drexler or Jordan or Bird or Johnson. So when I was 13 or 14, I stopped shooting 100 free throws a day like Larry said I needed to do if I wanted to be a pro, and I shifted my focus to something more reasonable, like psychology. I wanted to be like my parents. Both my mom and my dad were therapists. But then I hit high school, and I felt this need, this urge to break free from the models that I'd seen at home. And I found an incredible mentor, like we all do at some point in our academic careers. Mine was Mr. Clifford. He was an English teacher my freshman year. And he got me into different extracurricular activities that really challenged me during high school, something that I needed. One of them had to do with problem solving. We used the Deming model made so famous in Japanese businesses in the aftermath of World War II, but we addressed local community issues in our hometown of Sherwood, Oregon. I'd always been a big problem solver. So this fit naturally. Instead of reading books at an early age, I did math workbooks. I loved jigsaw puzzles and I would time myself to see how fast I could complete them. And I did crosswords word searches, and countless other activities on those family road trips that I took from Portland to LA to visit family. Now remember, this is pre-smartphones. So I'm in the back of the car as a 8, 9, 10, 13-year-old when you had to make your own fun. Think stranger things. I think I might have been like Mike Wheeler. Working on big complex problems as a high schooler was fun, and a career path to management consulting seemed like a really natural fit for me. I was already doing it at 17 years old through an internship at Nike headquarters. How cool is that? So when I got into college, I was expecting success, but what I found was a different story. The classes were boring. I hated the prereqs, especially macro econ and stats. I mean, somehow I managed to get a B plus in stats, even though it was open book and open note for all of the tests. I did succeed at one thing my freshman year though, and that was asking people for money. I found out I was actually really good at it. Now, I'd gotten into one of the top liberal arts programs in the country, and I was able to pay for it in large part with scholarships and grants from the school. So as a way to repay the university, I took a job calling alumni to ask them for money for the school scholarship fund. I figured, why not get paid for building more opportunity for me and others like me who needed the scholarships? Four times a week, I'd go into one of the classrooms that was turned into a call center after classes went home. I'd get a stack of cards with names and phone numbers on it and a bit of background on the alumni. And then me and the other... 10 or 15 or 20 callers would get to work. And it was grueling. Three straight hours of cold calling people and asking for money, that's tough. 
we had less than 10 seconds to make an intro and keep them on the call. And then when we did our pitch, we had to end it and close for money. Money from people who didn't have a lot at the time. I got a lot of no's, but I also got my fair share of yeses. I was able to hone my skills over hundreds of calls. And eventually I found a formula that worked really well for me. It was off script. Of course, I made my own way and it worked. That semester, I raised more money than anyone else on the team for the giving fund. But I struggled to succeed at the same level in college as I did at that job or I had previously done in high school. So I needed to take a year off to recalibrate. I had failed two classes my first semester and barely made it through with my scholarships intact on academic probation. I was back home one day and a buddy of mine asked me if I wanted to take a gap year, ride a bike through Europe with them, four months on the road. How could I say no? So to make enough money, we had to work hard and fast. The best opportunity was at this local Olive Garden where we served soups out and breadsticks at lunch and chicken parm and tours of Italy during the dinner. We did splits, lunch and dinner shifts with a gap in between five, sometimes six days a week. Waiting tables introduced me to a completely different selling environment that I had worked at at the calling fund. We sold food and drinks, of course, but we also sold experiences. I'll never forget what my first manager, Brian, said about the people who typically eat at the Olive Garden. He said that they may have had to work an entire day, sometimes two, to pay for one meal with their families at the restaurant. Treat them like it's the most important thing they'll do this week because it just might be. But I was also focused on making money for my trip. At the OG, you only get three tables to serve at one time, which means you have to turn the tables fast to get more guests each shift you work. More guests equals more sales, more sales, more tips. More tips equaled more days on my bike in Europe. Like the annual giving fund, I had lots of reps to perfect my closing techniques. How could I get this table to give me the highest price order as quickly as possible so I could get them out the door ASAP? I worked five years as a server in various restaurants like the Olive Garden and over a dozen years total in restaurants before I started selling events in 2006. In many ways, restaurant work prepped me well for selling weddings and venues and catering. But in other ways, it didn't translate at all. One of the biggest challenges I faced was not knowing how to push through what's called status quo bias. It's the biggest competitor you face when you're competing for business from the couples who inquire with you. Not other businesses, not other vendors, but status quo bias. So what is status quo bias? It's our general preference as humans to stick with where we are, with what we have, with who we're with, and what we're doing. It's why we stay in dead-end relationships or stick with our current friends, even though they're bringing us down. Or maybe we stick around in jobs we hate or renew a lease in a house we don't like. Or it could just be something simple like watching the next episode on Netflix because it's easier to do nothing and let it come on automatically. You know that little dial in the lower right-hand corner says something like 10 or 15 seconds, next episode will play in? That's playing on your status quo bias. Just sit there and do nothing and it comes on. It's magic. Status quo bias is really powerful. We humans don't like change. It's often associated with a negative emotion because it involves risk and the potential to lose what we currently have. What we have is familiar, safe. It's not harming us. Why take the chance on something new when we're still alive in our current position? Status quo bias is a survival skill. We learned over thousands of generations and it's wired into our DNA. Now, earlier I said status quo bias is the biggest competitor you face. How so? Because doing nothing is a silent decision most couples make when you present your proposals. You're not always being compared apples to apples to apples with competitors There's always the option for the couple not to bite into one at all. 
Procrastinating is the choice far more common than going in a different direction or choosing you over others. Because it's easy to kick the can down the road of making a decision on a vendor. Ask any wedding planner how hard it is to get couples to pick someone. Anyone. And you see this frequently when someone seems interested in your services but then ghosts you for days or weeks or even months. They might eventually come back if they get over the feeling of comfort in not making a decision. Status quo. Remember, couples take huge risks in picking someone they've never worked with and spend thousands of dollars on for a big event that occurs months down the road. They have lots of family and friends who are trying not to upset with the decision they make because it's easier to just not make a decision. And oh yeah, signing a contract with you is one more stop on the road to marriage. And that's pretty freaking scary to pick a partner for the rest of your life. So how do you get couples to push through status quo and make a decision at all? That's what the best salespeople do. And we do it by making it as easy as possible for couples to buy. One of the things we do is create desire for the purchase. If you want to make couples want your services, you got to drive their emotions. Then you're much more likely to get them off status quo and eager to make a move. I've talked about this on episode 31, what motivates your ideal clients. Another thing we can do is reduce the risk in choosing your services. I've talked about this on episode eight, the power of social proof. Couples want to know you're going to deliver on what you say you will and it will meet the highest expectations they have for their weddings. Social proof reverses the risk in choosing you over others. Scarcity, it's another big lever in creating a momentum. Scarcity is one of the most powerful principles of influence, but it's double-edged. Use it effectively, and you'll get things going. Use it too much or too hard, and you'll scare or upset or put off potential clients. Generally, I'm a fan of using micro-commitments, and I teach it as my preferred method to get couples off of status quo. I talk about it in depth in episode 24, gain momentum with micro-commitments. But the short version of it is to use baby steps to make it easier for a person to move forward. The bigger the change, the harder it is to make. So lessen the change from where they are to where they need to go. And you're much more likely to see that kind of progress. The sale process that I've designed and I teach to wedding pros factors this in at every step along the way. From contact forms to inquiry responses and discovery calls to proposal reviews. There are dozens of little micro-commitments, maybe hundreds of micro-commitments that the couple makes from, I wonder if this vendor is going to be a good fit, to, I'm so happy we just sent them a contract and deposit. That's why you don't hear me talk that much about how to close a deal. If you do all the little things well, and you do them early and in the middle stage of the sales process, you don't have to work very hard to get a client to say yes. You're just really giving them an opportunity to do it. So today, I am going to share with you three different ways you can wrap up the sales process with a couple using simple closing techniques. These aren't the yucky approaches that make your skin crawl, I promise you. The worst, the worst closing technique that I know is an assumptive technique, which assumes the client is moving forward even though they haven't yet committed to your services. Stop me if if you've heard this one before. So what email address should I send the contract to? That's a form of the assumptive close. We're staying away from things like that. It's gross, and it's not the kind of techniques that I think that you should be using with couples. What I'll share with you are three simple ways you can make closing the deal feel more like the next natural step in the buying process. Before you offer any kind of closing technique to a client, though, you must get six mini yeses to the following questions, all right? You have to get these to these questions. Do the services I'm offering meet all the couple's needs? 
Does everyone know how what I offer meets those needs? Is everyone who's making the decision ready to move forward? Do they know the full value of the tangible and intangible benefits of what I'm offering? Can they afford the option that they prefer? And finally, are they confident that I am or we are the best provider of services for their needs? If you can't respond with a resounding yes to these six questions, then you are not ready to close the deal, no matter what technique you use. Either the client won't find the solution to their problems and what you've offered, and so will A, not book you, or B, will book you, but then resent it and regret it later. Or you'll run into a behind-the-scenes decision-maker who's not fully on board. You know that groom who comes out of left field and stops things? That's what happens. Or maybe they're going to negotiate for a cheaper price. Or they'll get excited only to, quote, go in a different direction with a cheaper vendor. So before you ask for the ultimate yes on buying your services, make sure you get a yes to each of those six questions first. Now, I'm going to give you four different ways to ask for business. The first is a soft ask, and it's the easiest and most natural of them all. The soft ask is what you do when you've done all the right things in the sales process and the couple is ready to buy. All you do is summarize their excitement and energy and enthusiasm for working with you on their wedding. It could go something like this. Sounds like we're ready to take the next step. What do you say? Should we do this? Truly, it sounds just like that. Be true to you, though. Throw in a few paraphrases of whatever it was that they said they were most interested in, but keep it short and sweet. And don't make it feel like you're selling anything. It's just the next step for you all to take in the professional relationship you've been developing. I found that as I got better at sales, this became the frequent way I closed deals. Most of the time on proposal review calls, when we go over the options after I share the custom proposals after the discovery call, the client asked me for the contractor deposit options. Another ask is the try it first ask. I like this one for the nervous buyer who needs more reassurance but is probably ready to move forward. Essentially, you provide a simple service or offer a basic product at an entry-level price to a potential buyer to try out your work. It's a version of what sales pros might call the puppy dog close, which pet shop owners would use to sell puppies. I love this one. A family would come in to look at dogs. The kids would fall in love with a certain puppy, but the parents or maybe one of the parents would hesitate. So the shop owner would give the family everything they needed for the puppy to stay at that house for a day or two. Of course, the family would fall in love with the puppy and they would never go back to the shop to return the dog. This is actually playing on the status quo bias, but it reverses it on the buyer instead of plaguing the seller. Get them to lose the thing they want if they change directions with your services. Soft holds are a great way to use a try it first approach. Give the date to the couple for 72 hours. Let them feel how good it feels to own the date. To know that they've got that vendor secured, that item checked off the list. Another way you can do this is to secure the date and offer a one or two week no risk refund on their deposit. Lock in a date with a deposit payment and give them a short period of time to change their mind. Airlines do this all the time. I just booked a flight yesterday. I can cancel the flight with no penalties and get full money back within 24 hours of purchase. Hotels do this with free cancellations up to one or three days prior to arrival. Essentially, they're shifting the status quo with a try it first model. You can also get the couple to actually try your services or buy an entry-level product. Give them a floral arrangement to take home after the prototype meeting. 
offer to have them stay at your hotel or resort. I did this all the time when I worked at the resort in Washington. Do a tasting for catering. Schedule an engagement session if you're a photographer. Or work up a sample budget or scout out venues. Now, some of these can be freebies. These are called lost leaders. But you can also charge a fee for them too. The key is to make it a little purchase that's easy to take a step forward on. It's a foot in the door technique and it's incredibly effective. Now, the last closing technique I'm going to share with you is the anything else ask. You'll use this one if the client has questions or concerns about one of the options or going with you all together. Maybe the deposit is too big up front or they have questions about some of the language in the contract and they want to push back with red lines or they want to make sure you'll be there on the wedding day or they want to switch around a couple items in the packages and swap things out. Or maybe there's some other smallish obstacle that's getting in the way of them moving forward. When they share with you the issue or concern or challenge, acknowledge it. Ask clarifying questions about it if you need to, like what part of the payment schedule is holding you back? Or what are you hoping for if I'm at the wedding itself? Or how do you see swapping out these parts of the packages affecting the price for them? And once you've heard them out, ask if there's anything else getting in the way of them securing your services. Is there anything else getting in the way of you securing our services? It's that simple. Ask, listen, clarify, take notes. Then ask them again. Is there anything else preventing us from moving forward? Do this until you get a no to this question. No, there is nothing else keeping me from saying yes. Then you're going to go through each of their concerns or questions one at a time. Overcome the objection with explanations related to value or offer reassurance by telling stories using the feel felt found method, which demonstrates empathy and manifests the hurt effect with a frame of social proof or give in with a tiny concession that you've got in your back pocket. You've prepared ahead of time, like lowering the initial deposit amount or doing an extra mock up or throwing in an extra planning consultation. When you feel like you've addressed each concern adequately, and so does the buyer, ask them directly, does that address your concern? If they say yes, you move on to the next concern they have. You do this until you get through the entire list. Then you move back to the soft close I talked about first. You say something like, sounds like we worked through all the concerns you told me you had. Are you ready to secure our services for the date? It's that easy. So there you go. My go-to closing techniques that I recommend to all my clients. I think you'll find them very successful and they'll keep you from feeling salesy when all you're wanting to do is ask for us to move forward. Like the hundreds of alumni I spoke to or the thousands of guests I served at the Olive Garden, it'll take time for you to feel comfortable and gain confidence in your technique. But you'll get there if you take the first step to change your closing approach. And recognize that if you're feeling some resistance and pushback to doing this, you're likely experiencing the effects of status quo bias on yourself. So make a pact. Try it on one of the first clients that you get. Pick one approach. Do it on your next call. Just the next call. Not forever. Remember, baby steps, micro commitments. Boom. That's it for this episode on Own Your Business. If you've heard me on a stage or a workshop or someone else's podcast, you know I have a hard time keeping it short, but I know you're busy. So thanks for spending time with me today. You have a ton of options for guides when it comes to getting you to where you want to go. I hope you found someone you can continue to trust. If you have a friend who could use practical strategies to own their business, please share this episode with them. If you can't think of anyone in particular, we'd settle for a quick review on whatever podcast platform you listen through. 